countdown for blastoff. X minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, X minus one, fire! Today I'm very excited and happy to bring to you an interview with Dennis Kitchen. Now, if you don't know Dennis Kitchen by name, you'll very likely know Dennis Kitchen by deed. Dennis Kitchen is the founder of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. He's also the founder and namesake of Kitchen Sink Press and the founder of Corrupt Comic Work. Um, he's one of the pioneer artists in the underground comics scene from the 60s. The publisher, distributor, as an artist. He's also collaborated with so many of the greats over the years. Harvey Kurtzman of Mad Magazine and EC Comics. Uh, Will Eisner of Spirit. Um, he's written and published uh, several really beautiful books as well. One, The Art of Harvey Kurtzman, The Mad Genius of Comics. Uh, more recently, in April, Al Cap, A Life to the Contrary. You'll know Al Cap from uh, Little Abner. He's worked alongside, collaborated with, been an agent for, and published these greats uh, since the 60s. And not just them, too. I mean, he's worked alongside Trina Robbins, R. Crumb, Richard Corbin, it just you name it, he was there. In the 60s, when, when Mr. Kitchen started out, you know, everybody, so many people at least, were tuning in and turning on. He did too, but he didn't drop out. Starting with his own original underground comic called Mom's Homemade Comics, which was really nicely drawn and really funny, which he created and printed and sold and distributed all by himself, to his next step to publishing uh, comics for others which included, you know, Zap Comics and Bijou and and so many other titles. Well, listen, we're going to let uh, Mr. Kitchen tell us in his own words. And before we jump into the interview, I do want to say one thing, though. You know, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund has been helping protect the First Amendment rights since 1986. I recommend you subscribe and, and join that organization. Help them raise funds. Uh, secondly, at Mr. Kitchen's books, they're beautifully written, and take a look at them. Al Cap, Life to the Contrary, The Art of Harvey Kurtzman, Mad Genius of Comics. Those are the two more recent titles, both of which I've got, and I think you're going to enjoy them very much. Uh, thirdly, and something I just wanted to say, in the middle of the interview, we're going to talk a little bit about when Stan Lee offered um, Mr. Kitchen the opportunity to begin Comics Book. Now, that was Marvel's answer to the underground comic scene in the early 70s. That came at a time in, in Mr. Kitchen's personal and financial life where that offer just came at the right time. Now, I refer to this indirectly in the interview, but you'll notice I don't really go into what the issues were. I just didn't want to be that guy and pry into his personal life. I'd rather let a person bring up those subjects uh, on their own if they'd like to discuss them. If you do want to know what the background is, though, I mean, it's not a secret, pick up a copy of The Oddly Compelling Art of Dennis Kitchen. There's a great essay at the beginning of that, which really lets you know all the background and, and factors in his family and financial and, and life that, that were just bubbling up at that time. Well, I just wanted to explain that in case it seemed odd that I went around it. But again, it's not my thing to bring to people's personal lives. Mr. Kitchen was so generous with his time. He was so open. He talked about starting out in primary school, what his interests and influences were, uh, right up to what he's doing right now. And I hope you enjoy the interview. Please share your feedback and comments at the end of the interview. Let me know what you think. Here we go. Hi, Mr. Kitchen. How are you? Hi. Hi, Greg. 
I uh, I hope that was you. Otherwise, I'd have to tell whoever it was to get off the line. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, it's, I really appreciate you taking some time to meet with me today. And I imagine you're in a quiet, comfortable place. Um, not completely quiet. There's a thunderstorm outside. If you hear any rumbling. Oh, okay. Well, I've got construction outside mine, so that that's perfect. Tell me, what was the uh, the inspiration for founding the the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund? Uh, basically, it was outrage. I was uh, at the time in Wisconsin, and I was. Uh, publisher, Kitchen Thing Press, and I got a call from uh, um, the the owner of a chain of comic shops in the Chicago area, a guy named Frank Mangi Racina, one of his managers, Michael Correa, uh, running the Lansing, Illinois store, was busted, and uh, one of the titles seized uh, as pornographic was Omaha the Cat Dancer, which I published, and while Omaha had erotic content, um, I certainly um, was outraged to think it would be considered pornographic. It was, as you and hopefully many listeners know, it's it's really a quite literate uh, comic, um, and um, sex is just a small, natural part of the story. So um, I uh, immediately asked if I could do anything, and Frank told me he had uh, hired a local attorney and and things would probably be okay. He just wanted to alert me. Well, it turned out the local attorney uh, had no real experience with the First Amendment case. Uh, they had an ill-advised uh, witness, and to make a long story short, they lost. And when I found out they lost, then I was really outraged because um, I, I, I couldn't imagine that was going to happen. Um, I also saw press clippings in which the uh, the cop who made the bust made some uh, ridiculous statements uh, that, uh, for example, um, the, the, the comics that he seized were satanic, and even posters on the wall of, like, Wonder Woman were, quote, satanic, unquote. So I realized this guy was a religious nut who uh, was, was, was going to find all kinds of things objectionable, and, and this is what the First Amendment is supposed to protect us from. So I talked to uh, Frank, and I told him that uh, I was going to jump into the fray and raise some money and uh, and do something to appeal the case. And so I engaged uh, 10 or 12 uh, artists, including Robert Crumb and Will Eisner and uh, Reed Waller, the uh, the artist from uh, <clears throat> Omaha, people like yeah, Sergio Ergonis, who would never, yeah, Sergio Ergonis would never be busted. Um, I did a piece myself, and 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 others. Richard Corbin. I don't have the list in front of me, but the point is, um, I created a portfolio, and I got the uh, the printer to do it at cost. I got the distributors in the business to agree to do it with minimal or no markup. Um, basically, we we tried to squeeze as many dollars as possible out of those portfolios, and. Uh, I, I, I then engaged a fellow named Bert Joseph uh, in Chicago, who was a leading First Amendment attorney, who had been basically uh, the guy advising uh, Hugh Hefner at the Playboy Foundation on, mm -hmm. on, on, on such cases. So he took on the appeal, and he was able to turn it uh, over. And uh, and so thank goodness that that immediate crisis was over. At that point, um, <clears throat> there were some thousands of dollars left in this special account that I put the money in, segregated, and, and I, I asked myself whether 
I should just give that to another charity or whether maybe the, the fund should be maintained. And obviously I decided um, to continue it, but um, I, I, I wasn't sure there would be other cases. And uh, well, it turned out there were lots of cases. And what I think we all learned in the industry was that there were periodically shops being busted for various reasons, but no one ever found out about it nationally because typically the retailer would be uh, embarrassed, frightened, mm. intimidated. Yeah. And uh, and that would be the end of the story. Once we had the CBLDF as a national organization with an 800 number and publicity, then retailers realized they had an ally that they could call and they would get expert legal help immediately and they didn't have to cave to an overzealous prosecutor or some deranged uh, local officer with a you know, a problem. And uh, that changed everything. Well, I guess so. I mean, it would really shine a light on what was happening at a at a community or or a state level that the rest of the country might not even be aware of. You know, and and I suppose too, without someone to turn to, you know, publishers or or sellers would would be pressured to settle out of court just to avoid the huge expense of it all or the Absolutely. the bad press. Absolutely. So there were no doubt countless such instances. Uh, Prior to that, only a handful I had ever been aware of. One was uh, back at the height of the underground comics days. Zap number four was busted in New York and actually uh, uh, lost. Uh, that, Miller versus California, right? That with the Joe uh, Blow. No, that's a that's that's a much larger case uh, uh-huh. invo- involving obscenity uh, at the Supreme Court level. I'm talking about a, a, a local case in which oh, okay. Zap number four was busted based on a Robert Crumb incest story and the judge i think judge tyler found it uh, obscene um uh but it was never enforced and so after the initial scare we found i mean i was a distributor myself at the time talk about hats mm-hmm. and uh, i distributed uh, zaps and we had uh, we had no problem um selling zap uh, in new york or anywhere so so the case was just kind of an anomaly, and that's why I and others I don't think ever uh, took uh, took seriously uh, mm-hmm. reports that uh, comics were being busted. And then when when the that, that was the the Korea case, yes, or Friendly Franks, you know, when that was resolved and 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 you had a victory, you had the money in the bank and and your choice was to maybe give that to a charity or to carry on. Um, what led you to take that step and, and, and lead it, it for the next crossed, 20 years? It just, I guess it just crossed my mind that, first of all, the money was raised for a specific purpose to mm-hmm. defend a, a retailer. And it just seemed to me, gosh, maybe there will be another case. Let's just keep that in the bank. And uh, at that point, I, uh, I actually picked a couple of people who had been helpful uh, in raising money and and, and, and volunteered and, and created a, a board of three and just started to get word out to the industry mm-hmm. and uh, so it, it it proved to be the right choice although at the time I remember you know thinking about it um, and and it, it didn't seem like a no brainer back in 1988 or 89. Mm-hmm. Well, it's how much of a time commitment was that for you? Were you actively involved in in many cases beyond that? Because what came afterwards? 
Well, again, there were a number of cases over the years. I can't off the top of my head even remember what the second one was. Um, right. As far as I mean, as far as time, you know, any any voluntary activity can can take time. Um, I uh, what 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 we did. The first step I really did was to make an application for 501c3 nonprofit mm-hmm. organization status from the from the IRS, so that um, money was tax deductible and and we we enjoyed a certain legal status. That took some time. Once we had that, that 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 made uh, that made us a, a certain kind of legal entity with certain filing obligations and so forth. But also, it meant that the the board itself um, had to engage in, in 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 specific activities that were defined by by our charter, mm-hmm. and uh, so it limited us to uh, uh, cases in the United States because it was a First Amendment based. Uh, That's right. But we couldn't help anyone in Canada, for example. Um, and also, we had an. We've sent you a lot of work, though, stopping books at the border going yes. north or south. Chronically. Yeah, That's been I apologize for that. Uh, and uh, and so the the board gradually grew, and uh, I, I wanted from the beginning the board to be diversified, to have elements from all parts of the industry, creators, retailers, distributors, uh, and, uh, uh, and 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 basically. Uh, uh, what the board does is look at, at cases that are brought to us. I mean, they aren't automatic. If you uh, are, uh, for example, someone who shop was busted and you called us and you laid out the facts, uh, if if you had done something stupid like sell an X-rated comic to a 12-year-old, well, we wouldn't be defending you for your stupidity. But there are other cases that were rather ambiguous, and they might involve a violation of local ordinances that might require that uh, certain kinds of adult literature be uh, at a certain height off the floor or in a segregated mm-hmm. room or any number of things. So we always had to ask uh, Bert Joseph, who we kept on retainer, to, to first make sure that, in fact, it was a First Amendment case and, and uh, one that... that, that we had grounds to to fight and to win, and sometimes they were rejected on on purely technical grounds, or sometimes people would call us because they they uh, an artist might say I was ripped off by a publisher, and you got to help me. Well, that that wasn't part of it's, our purview. It's not a freedom of speech case. Yeah, exactly. that's a, you know that's a private or tort, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. So it took a while to educate the market on what exactly we were there to do, and it wasn't just a free legal service for anybody who had a problem. No. You know, when I I look at the the books that have been, well, that have had concerns raised or expressed or banned over the years, so, you know, some of them, which my nine-year-old loved, the Bone books, um, uh, Persepolis at Miriam Satrapi one, which was a great book. um, Right. An autobiographical. Um, I think Batman Dark Knight, The Watchmen. Some of those we wouldn't want children reading necessarily. It depends on the kid and and, and which book. But right. some of the uh, complaints have been such stretches, though. And it would have such a chilling effect, I think, on like in the Korea case, that was the store manager being being sued. Then wasn't it? I mean, it wasn't the owner or yourself right. or the publisher or the the writer, and. Right. 
even that is kind of a, it's hard to comprehend. Why would they sue the store manager? Um, well, you have to understand from their point of view, he's he's the violator. Um, mm-hmm. It would be very complicated to go after a publisher, uh, for example. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, the cop walks into the shop and he's going to arrest the guy behind the counter. Mm-hmm. Well, prior to that, there'd been the uh, the Zapnum report case, and and you know I was reading actually I just finished reading the the book The Oddly Compelling Art of Dennis Kitchen. Oh, and that's the bestseller. Yes, I loved it. I enjoyed <laughs> it very much. Well, thank you. And um, the, you'd had a number of well maybe. Uh, Recognition that this could be an issue down the road, I imagine, because Zap Number Four and and you were distributing Zap at the time, and and then you had a hard time getting a publisher for, or pardon me, a printer for Wet Satin, the Trina Robbins book, um, and even then, I mean, going back to the 50s, there's the Senate uh, investigations and Frederick Wortham, and it seemed to have been a constant theme. Is that something that you're even conscious of when you started out? Well. You have to remember that um, comic art is a relatively new art form, uh, you know, starting some, depending on where you define it in America, the 1890s, if you take Yellow Kid, go back some decades earlier, if you, you know, want to be technical and same in Europe. But the the point is within that young art form, comic books are especially uh, young. It's dating to the 1930s. And when they began, they were collecting newspaper strips and uh, basically uh, putting material out there for a young audience. It was perceived widely as a children's medium, also because it was 10 cents and easily affordable. That's right. And so you have to understand that for for quite a while, um, um, that 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 was the perception. And so when in the later 40s you see some horror comics and uh, and and, and Crime comics like crime heat titles, yeah, yeah, things that were getting quite violent and had some sexual innuendo and suggestive imagery and so on. That parents and uh, some parent groups and certainly Doctor uh, Wortham began to uh, to raise some red flags and and uh, so we, we we know what happened. We know it led to the self censoring board, the Comic Code Authority, that really benefited the publishers who were doing squeaky clean material like Archie and mm-hmm. DC and uh, drove out of business some of the better ones and uh, notably EC comics and so there was a lot of politics uh, involved there beyond uh, the, the, the merits of some of the claims mm-hmm. and of course it totally emasculated comic content so by the mid 50s uh, comics were pretty puerile and, uh, and tame and uh, and and the most part uninteresting that's when i was growing up and so i was seeing older comics that i thought were uh really exciting and i was getting new comics off the rack that by and large you know were not the same i recognized the difference without knowing at all what that comic code authority really stemmed from and i remember going to the library and finding seduction of the innocent and and um so there were there were clues as to what happened, but got to remember at this point comics were not taken seriously at all either. There was virtually nothing on the subject out there, um, and so as I got a bit older and 
I'm still reading comics. My tastes are changing, and I was a teenager when uh, Stan Lee brought back, uh, you know, the superhero genre with the Fantastic, Fantastic Four. Four. I, I was I, I didn't quite buy number one off the stand, but I think I started with number four, and I I bought Iron Man number one and Spider Man number one and things like that. I was right there at the beginning of that Marvel revolution and and loving it. Because it was something exciting again that he had injected in the comics, and uh, it, it 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 made me want to read them again. And uh, the same same reason uh, the comic strips in the newspaper that caught me. Uh, there would be you know compelling stories, cliffhangers, characters uh, I, I I liked. That's the magic of comics. But. Uh, I don't think uh, I, I could have, at that stage of my life, known that I would become a professional and would ever deal with these censorship issues. But even as a kid, I was aware that uh, there were people who objected to some kinds of comics, and I couldn't quite understand why, because even the worst of the horror comics, uh, uh, they were just creepy. In the same way, Edgar Allan Poe was creepy, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when you when you started off as a child then and you're reading comics, you had fairly diverse tastes too, didn't you? I mean, which continue to this day, I think. Um because I over the years I know that you've you've published or distributed or or been agent for Harvey Kurtzman and Will Eisner. Um and you have a strong uh, uh affection for I think Little Abner and and uh, the Al Cap books and and Nancy, Ernie Bush Miller's work. Sure. Um, where did that eclectic taste, range of taste, come from? Because you know, often My, kids uh, fixate on one well, thing or the other. I, I guess I'm not sure. I know that growing up as a kid, when um, I was spending most of my allowance on comic books, when thank God they were only a dime, and I had all of fifty cents to blow every week. Um, Get five books for that. You bet. And uh, so I would uh, I would swap with other kids in the neighborhood because everyone in those days seemed to be an avid comic book reader. But I noticed most of the boys were focused on the superhero stuff. And I love Little Lulu and Uncle Scrooge and a lot of the oddball titles. And uh, I, I quickly found out in horse trading that you could get two for one, three for one. In other words, I could give one... Superman say and get back three little Lulus and to me I was like wow are they stupid and they were probably thinking oh is he stupid you know yeah but, I found someone um, with my Harvey's on <laughs> yeah you, you you understand and so I never thought uh, there was anything wrong with the superheroes I enjoyed them I just didn't think they were necessarily better and in fact um, I thought in in, in in many ways, Little Lulu and Uncle Scrooge were superior. I thought the stories were better, and I liked the way they were drawn. I didn't, I didn't necessarily think the, the 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 quote realistic unquote style was superior. It was just different. And so those were early instincts. No one taught me. There were there were certainly no uh, no fan publications or anything that could have influenced me. It was just uh, my own observation and. Um, so certainly I think that pattern stayed with me, as you point out. As a publisher, I've, I've always uh, wanted to publish a diverse line. Uh, my own style when I draw tends to be of, of the funnier 
style, and uh, I still uh, I still love them all. Uh, at least the, the the best of all the genres. You know, I, I really enjoy surveying all your work over the years. I really enjoy your your artistic style. You know, your books are funny. Your your style is is original, and I just really like it. I'll just sum it up that way. Well, thanks, Greg. When you started out, um, you started out at a young age um, as a writer and a distributor, didn't you? I mean, you did everything. Tell me about well, that. Well, I mean, if if you're talking about the grade school uh, things that I created. It uh, seemed to be yeah. where it all began. Yeah, I can't uh, exactly explain why, because, again, there was no one in my family who was uh, noticeably entrepreneurial. Um, I just enjoyed uh, drawing uh, and writing stories and sharing with classmates. And uh, I, I, I was fortunate, I think, as early as, I believe it was second grade, uh, a teacher caught me showing something I did to a classmate. And instead of reprimanding me, she said, uh, well, why don't you uh, share it with the whole class? And I, <laughs> maybe that was a reprimand. <laughs> but, um, but I took advantage of it, and I stood up, and I remember showing the reading it aloud and then passing around the cartoons and getting some Snickers and apparent approval. And all that did was encourage me. And that same teacher then um, did encourage it. So from the earliest uh, age, I was uh, creating things for classmates. Not all teachers were as supportive, of course, but whether clandestinely or openly, I was passing things around. And by the time I got to be 13, <clears throat> I realized um, um First of all, there were somebody in the class maybe who was just like absconding with it or not mm-hmm. returning it to be malicious, and so because you were renting it out at a penny a, a penny a uh, read. Yeah? Well, I was uh, I was yes, and and then it sometimes wouldn't be returned, and so all my labor was uh, for naught, and so I decided uh, to um, when I didn't decide, I was actually approached by a school secretary who was a mother of a classmate and, and uh, to, to encourage me she invited me to come in after school and use the uh, the principal's uh, duplicating machine this was in the era before Xeroxes yeah. uh, there were various names for these it wasn't quite a mimeograph there was some other name for it but it allowed you to basically draw on this carbon like uh, there was a carbon on the reverse and it would uh, go on this other sheet of paper and you put that on this drum and when you put this foul smelling spirit in there you could turn the drum and you could get 50 to 75 copies as I recall and you could even do it in up to three colors so I took advantage of that and uh, then suddenly instead of having to uh, risk a, a classmate not returning it, I could just sell it, and they could keep it, and I'd, I'd get the penny, which back in 1960, you know, uh, selling 50 of those, uh, 50 cents, that'd buy me, you know, five comic books. Well, you're, you're, you're your own man at that point. I mean, you've, yeah, you you're got printing it. money. I was, <clears throat> I, I was printing money. And it wasn't just that, as you can imagine, for some ego gratification, because yeah. um, there, there were kids who appreciated it, and, and, and more often than not, the teachers, I think, encouraged it, because... Let's face it, anybody who's showing some initiative is usually rewarded. And then when I went into high school, I, it, it became a little more sophisticated, and it, and it, and it went up to a nickel or maybe even more, and, and the circulation went up to 
Um, I think it, it topped at about 300 and something. And um, all of that was basically a training ground, though I couldn't have known it at the time, um, a training ground to be um, a cartoonist and a writer and a publisher and a distributor <laughs> and, and, and on some level a businessman because uh, it, it took a little bit of all those things to make it happen. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I fantasized, you know, maybe I get into comics, but everybody from teachers and advisors and family discouraged getting into comics, mainly because they didn't know anything about it. It was one of those areas where they couldn't give proper advice, and it and it seemed like a, uh, a thing that would be difficult uh, to get into. In the same way, maybe if uh, you told your parents or teacher, you know, you wanted to be a, an actor or, or a comedian, you know, or a football star, then, well, maybe football they'd encourage, but, you know, anything creative, they, they know it's a tough field, and... Uh, a lot of heartaches, and uh, only a few succeed. Well, the, a question I, I like to ask in my interviews is, and the theme we're exploring now is, how did you begin? And because, as you point out, it's often a mystery to people. You know, how did Stan Lee emerge fully formed as this comic book editor, or Harvey Kurtzman, or yourself? And in the story, how one got there is is often the most interesting. You know, and and all the well, all the lessons you learned. Well. I know uh, in, uh, Harvey Kurtzman at, at, at a very young age was drawing uh, cartoons on the sidewalk with chalk and and literally getting passersby to comment on it. That was his first encouragement, and, uh, and he was copying Rube Goldberg's uh, Ike and Mike uh, strips or variants of it. And it was that encouragement early on. And same with me. If my second grade teacher had yelled at me and punished me, um, it, it's possible I, I wouldn't have uh, turned into the, the same kid that I did. And, and, and that's why I think it's important anybody, you know, who is a teacher, um, show encouragement to kids who draw or write or sing or dance or anything because, uh, you know, you don't want to stifle that creative urge. During this time, did anyone express any concern about this this eight or ten or thirteen year old who was he took five cents from my child? Did anyone express concern? <laughs> no, did never. your mom or dad end up talking to you and and asking what that's all about? Tell me about no. that. No, you know, I think most 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 kids had some kind of an allowance. I was charging such a tiny amount. I mean, uh, um, I, what was a penny even in 1960? What was a nickel? I mean, uh, yeah, it was a half a comic book, but a comic book was the the, the lowest, cheapest form of entertainment there was. So it it, it, it wasn't anything obnoxious. Um, nor I did. Nor I was my ego large enough to think I could have charged more. You know, had I said, "Hey, it's a dime," I think uh, my circulation would have plummeted. <laughs> <laughs> the market would have collapsed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <clears throat> well, now from there, you well, I, I'd like you to tell the story. But from there, you you went to college and you had. Tell me what happened. Tell me what did you study at school? Well, again, this is the crossroads where, uh, you know, what do you what do you want to be when you grow up? And 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 I uh, I decided as a practical matter. What I did you not want to be? 
I always oh, that. I guess you're 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 referring to the engineering story, huh? Well, no, actually, I wasn't thinking of that consciously. Oh. As a kid, I always knew, you know, my 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 parents worked for the uh, BZ Ferry Corporation. Pretty certain I didn't want to do that. Um, right. You know, I had an uncle who was. I actually had a lot of hippies in my family, and I could see what what <laughs> they got into later. And I right. uh, like the. We can talk about this later. They ended up becoming lawyers or, or land developers and architects. Sure. Get two types of hippie. Those that went on to be publishers or lawyers or architects and land developers and those who didn't. Um, but I knew I didn't want to do that. Is right. there anything, because it just wasn't me, but it took a while to find out what I did want to do. Well, okay, now I understand your you? question. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, most of my family was... Uh, was was poor was you know blue collar worker one kind or another and mm-hmm. uh, certainly factory work didn't appeal to me and right out of high school um, I, I really couldn't afford college I had to work to earn my tuition and I was fortunate that a that a friend uh, had a father who was some kind of a supervisor at a foundry in Racine Wisconsin and he got me a summer job and my God that was an awful job I mean to this day I can still uh, Imagine being in it, and uh, I literally lost my sense of smell working there two summers because the chemicals were so foul. And uh, the guy I replaced uh, as a summer uh, kid literally uh, had to leave early because he had emphysema. Mm -hmm. I knew that was my future if I spent more than a small amount of time there. So uh, factory um, work was something to avoid, uh, especially uh, that kind of a the factory and uh i i i i think uh you know i i i i desperately wanted to be a cartoonist i just didn't know if it was realistic because i think uh, i'd been so discouraged plus there was no clue like i said there were there were first of all no schools that taught cartooning there were art schools but art schools and art teachers i found out very quickly all looked their nose down at comics uh and uh, to put it mildly, I mean, most mm-hmm. of them uh, despised comics, and that message was loud and clear. And so um, when I uh, entered uh, college and I had to declare a, a major, I, I decided journalism was a practical route because I like to write, and I thought uh, I can self-teach myself how to draw. I already thought I drew pretty competently for my age, and uh, that, that that writing was what needed to be honed. And I picked journalism over English because it just seemed like the more pragmatic way to learn how to communicate. Uh, in uh, and, and I think that probably was a smart choice. Uh, uh, what I didn't realize, because I didn't read the fine print, was that there were uh, the, the prerequisite was typing, and I'd never taken the typing class in high school, so I was thrown into classes where you. Uh, uh, in, in, in like journalism 101, a professor, uh, at least when I went, would would give you the essence of of a story, and we had to be good journalists, ask questions, take notes, and then uh, rough out our story, and then type it and turn it in before the end of the class. So the whole process was like 50 minutes, and most people, uh, well, I think everyone but me knew how to type, and so they could do that in the proper order. I was a hunt and peck typist, and so I didn't have time to write the story first. I had to write it as I typed it in order to turn it in at the end of the class, mm-hmm. and that actually was a very good thing for me. It forced me to uh, compress my thoughts, to 
to work uh, spontaneously, and uh, it wasn't always perfect, but by God, I turned it in at the end of the class, and I never did learn how to properly type, and over my career, I have written tens of thousands of letters and uh, and emails, I mean, maybe uh, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, I mean, it's all I do all day, and I still do it with two fingers, but those two fingers are, I can tell you, are a blur. They do the work at 12. Uh, I don't know about that, but I've often thought if I had learned to type properly, how more productive I might have been. But that's uh-huh. another what if. You know? Well, it might have made you quicker. I don't think it would have made you more creative, though. Do you think? No, so you it's Ellen, more productive. Uh, was it uh, Aretha Franklin? She never learned to read or write uh, music. I think that was one of her great regrets. Didn't yeah. hold her back, though. Yeah. So, you know, you uh, you, you do what you can. Um I suppose I could have taken remedial typing, but it didn't occur to me. No. So now you're a journalist, or and you completed your degree? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I got a BS, a major in journalism, and I still wanted to be a cartoonist. Um, uh, I, I went to uh, to apply uh, for a job right out of school as a, an illustrator at the Milwaukee Journal. They had mm-hmm. a, a an, an ad, and I thought this is perfect because I, I love Milwaukee. I, I I thought this is a perfect place to, to to stay in town and be paid to be an illustrator. And I went into the appointment, and they said, "Well, you don't have a degree in uh, in art." And I said, "No, but here's my portfolio, and you know, I have this journalism degree." And they said, "Sorry, we have to we have to have an art degree." And I realized, my God, I'm going to run into this everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. So, what I decided shortly after that, um, mainly because uh, I was. Uh, bachelor and wasn't tied down and was willing to starve was I'm just going to be a freelancer and uh, and so I did indeed starve for uh, a couple of years you know with your oh and at school actually you you did this cool paper there didn't you um I contributed to the school paper did a A, a, a weekly strip, more or less, and I also co-founded a, a humor magazine, and, and 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 was able to do cartoons and illustrations for that. Mm-hmm. So, sure, there were outlets, and and I freelanced, and I I did ads for local retailers and such. It was all experience, and in fact, the second issue of the uh, humor magazine was to be an all comic book issue, and. Uh, but the uh, the first editor absconded with all the profits from the first issue, and so what I had done for that ended up being the bulk of Mom So Me Comics number one, mm-hmm. self published in 1969. And that that previous publication that was Snide, right? Yes, Snide. That's Who right. was that on the cover of Snide one? Uh, it was a photograph of a street person. Um, I uh, I did the filigree around him and the logo. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it was a collaboration with a local photographer. Oh, okay, okay. And at at that time, who were your influences? I mean, had you created your own style at that point, or were you still absorbing? It evolved. I never was consciously copying anybody, which I think is a good thing. Um, I knew what I liked, and uh, I, I mean, my my favorites you already mentioned were mm-hmm. strips like Little Abner and uh, Nancy and. Uh, in the comics, I, I love Carl Barks and Basil Wolverton and uh, John Stanley and a lot of people I didn't even know the name of when I was first reading. 
because they weren't allowed to sign their names. But uh, there was never a one of them that I was consciously copying. And I think if you look at my style now, uh, it, it, there's no obvious influence. Uh, uh, I, I think I, I picked up little tidbits from from a lot of them. I would uh, I would I would see their solution to some things. Um, how to uh, how to abbreviate. Uh, uh, part of the body or a facial expression or an object and and when I would be struggling with it and I'd read a strip and I'd say oh that's how they do it and mm-hmm. I, they might you know a little trick and then once you start doing things your own way uh then you you, you keep modifying it yourself uh, I, I I never wanted to be derivative uh it just seemed wrong it seemed like if you're going to be in the creative business you got to be creative and not a copycat yeah well, you know, when I look at your work, the the aesthetic around that time, it's right. You, some of your 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 issues. I'm trying to think right now. You do jams with other artists, and you contribute different components to it. And you all had very distinctive styles. The aesthetic seemed to be very '60s and counterculture. Um, you were active in that, or at least you enjoyed it, like everybody else in the '60s. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, and the point of that too, you have to remember, was it was it was the uh, anti-newsstand uh, comics at that point. It was we realized if you're going to work for Marvel or DC or Archie or any of the big companies, you would have to adopt their house style. And not that everyone who contributed to those big companies drew in exactly the same way, but you know what I mean. Archie yeah. had to look the same, and Superman has to look essentially the same. That's right. Um, I certainly never wanted to do that, um, and so what the very the one thing all the underground cartoonists agreed on, I think, uh, just it, it was just instinctive was we would uh, draw uh, uh, the way was most natural to us. We would letter it in our own way as long as it was legible. We would just do do everything um as a as a one man show is kind of the the auteur approach you know mm-hmm. to use a, a film term and we did not want the the assembly line approach that was necessary for newsstand comics that was not what we were about well looking at yeah some of your work here you know i'm i'm actually looking at something a little later on with bugle american the uh the uh the page spread you did on that, or I think it was the cover, where I think it's you who's going through the trap door, and you're selling yes, John Q. Right. Public. The hell with right. you fight him. That was, was the last that. issue. Um, well, I think it's symbol. It's it's it was a symbol for the underground paper finally closing its doors after seven years, mm-hmm. and uh, so I just uh, I, I drew the, uh, the 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 reporter. Symbolizing the paper escaping yeah. into the the sewer or whatever, and all the perceived uh, enemies and uh, and uh, causes for the demise were were in the background. Uh, it was fun to do, and it was kind of a bookend because I'd done the very first cover and then the very last, and dozens in between. At seven years, it did last uh, much longer than most, um, uh, but. Uh, Obviously, you've done your your homework, Greg. What what I what I enjoy actually on that is reading what's written on the chests of all the characters in the back, uh, the crazies, the corruption, the burnouts, monopoly media, phony liberals, 
pseudo hippies, big business. This seems to be a theme actually when I look at your work right from the very beginning. And uh, tell me a bit about that. Because well, I don't want to dwell on, on the sixties too much, except to say uh to talk well have to though, I think, when we talk about the underground comic scene. Because you became really uh, central to the underground comic scene in in a short span of time, I think. Starting with Mom's Homemade and, and when you made the jump to publishing your own books. Can, can you tell us a bit about that, please? And then all those influences. I'd love to know more about these and where they fit in your work and your approach. Okay. Well, um, uh, sounds like a few questions. It is. How did you make the, the jump to Mom's Homemade? Well, like I said, the, what Moms was going to be the second issue of the college uh, humor magazine, and, and of course when that folded, I, I had the material and I thought, what the heck, I'll self-publish it. How hard can that be, he said mm-hmm. naively. <laughs> so I had very little money. I went to a, a printer that someone recommended, a very small shop, and, uh, and, and I said, I've got X amount of dollars. How many of these can you print? And he scratched his head and he said, "No, oh, you can do four thousand. So I said, "All right, let's print four thousand and uh again, I had no uh no role model, whatever I'd only seen i think one other underground comic at that point was Bijou number one out of chicago and i'm yeah. I'm not even positive I had seen that um, so I did what seemed to be common sense to me. I took it around to uh, first of all the head shops and put it on consignment, and in the used bookstores and the college bookstore and uh, the druggist around the corner that I knew, and anybody who could, would put a few on the counter, literally, and would let me to come back, you know, next week and collect the money and replace it. And they were all surprisingly helpful. I think, uh, again, the instinct was probably to help the the, the, the local artist. And probably they were as astonished as I was that they rapidly sold, and I was constantly replacing them. And and over the course of two or three months, I sold out 3,500 of the run. Around the time I had the last batch of 500, my one of my roommates was literally ready to drive to San Francisco to check out the the scene up there. This was in 1969, yeah. uh, two, two years after the summer love where hippies yeah. were migrating. And I said, "All right, you know, take him and and see uh, see, see what you can uh, do." And uh, he called me after he got out there, and he said that uh, the print mint, uh, uh, one of the the only company at the time publishing undergrounds, uh, said they would be happy to uh, to do a new printing of it out there. And I said, "Great." And at that point, I thought, I. I'm now a cartoonist. I have a publisher, and that's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And it might have happened that way, except that when I finally heard from the print mint again, um, they did they did print a revised version of number one with some changes. Um, but there was never anything in writing. It was all very hippy-dippy. And I, I, I just got a check in the mail one day, and I was happy to get a check. But there was nothing with it, and I, <clears throat> I was enough of a of a of a business head to be curious how they determined the amount they sent me, and so I called and I talked to a guy named Bob Rita, who was I think the co-owner, co-publisher, and I said, hey Bob, thanks for the check, but uh, what, there was nothing in it that said how many you printed or how you you know what what, what the percentage went to me and. I started asking what seemed to me simple questions, and and he very quickly said, "Are you calling me a crook?" 
And um, that stopped me in my tracks because I wasn't calling to tell him he was a crook. I was calling him because I just wanted more information. But when he immediately got that defensive and suggested uh, he might be a crook, then the thought maybe occurred to me. Maybe he's under something. Yeah. yeah, maybe you are ripping me off because, I mean, the truth is um, – they could have lied. They could have just said we printed uh, a phony number and a phony percentage, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have audited them. I just wanted an explanation. I thought I was, des- I deserved that. He got so defensive right away and so ugly on the phone that I, I hung up uh, after the unpleasant conversation, and I said, I don't want to deal with these people. I'm just going to print my next one again because uh, I can and. At least I know what it costs to print, and I know I get to keep uh, the money left from the, the wholesale price I give it to the local shops for. So <clears throat> so I I did that. And right around that time, I had met Jay Lynch and Skip Williamson, the artists in Chicago who had done Bijou. They also were published by Print Mint. And when I, I mentioned to Jay that's what I was doing, he said, well, you know, we don't like those guys either. Will, mm-hmm. will you do Bijou too? <laughs> and I very cavalierly said to him the words I will never forget, sure, Jay, doing two is as easy as one. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um, which You're always confident. Uh, confident, yes. One could say uh, dumb also. Mm. But what that forced me to do, uh, it it, uh, it forced me to be responsible for other artists' work suddenly. And I had to make sure <clears throat> I did to them what Printment did not do for me, which is uh, give them very accurate information to figure out what a fair royalty was and to uh, be methodical and keep records and to also try to sell as many books as possible because uh, now it was becoming a little business and it very quickly grew because other publishers started bringing me things. Shortly after that, uh, Jay Lynch uh, uh, called me and he said Robert Crumb was coming to Chicago and they were thinking of taking the bus up to Milwaukee and I said, sure, because I knew Crumb's work from Harvey Kurtzman's Hope magazine and had admired it and, of course, had seen Zap by that time. So I was excited. He was already, in my eyes, a, a star. And uh, when they visited, I got along with him. He saw I had an old 78 RPM jukebox in my little tiny apartment, and he collected 78s. And we suddenly found all these things we had in common. And within a short time of knowing him, he said, I'm working on a new book. Um, I'll, I'll give it to you. And that was Homegrown Funnies, which turned out to be, I think, the old-time best-selling comic for kitchen sink well into uh, six figures and so um, pretty soon what what had started as a bit of a lark uh, turned into a business that uh, was growing and pretty soon I needed help and I, I needed a partner and I needed to expand and, and then I needed a warehouse and the next thing I knew we had a, our own retail store and a commercial studio and I created this octopus on the letterhead because I I, I was making fun of the fact that this little hippie business was growing and each arm had a division. Mm-hmm. And when I first did it, um, I, I didn't even have a division for every tentacle, but by the time we ran out of letterheads, we did have eight, and every tentacle had a little sign. Uh, and I, I was honestly quite astonished. But what I realized 
was there was this subculture that was quite real, and they were all looking for uh, things to identify with. Someone to and speak included... to them. <clears throat> I'm sorry, what? There's someone to speak to them. Yes. Um, hippies scattered all over the you know the continent were um, really looking forward to buying those comics and taking them back to their pad or their dorm or whatever, and maybe... Uh, They'd light up you read it and, and exactly. it would blow and, their minds. Uh, we started getting letters from these people and calls, and then the head shops would call us and say, we want them. And it was just expanding of its own accord because the counterculture was, was growing as the anti-war movement was growing and as there were more people hating Nixon and there were more people growing their hair long and, um, and uh, part of the... Uh, you know, let's legalize pot. And keep mm-hmm. in mind, at the same time, there were uh, women agitating for for rights. The feminist movement was was getting uh, yeah. stronger. There was still the the, the civil rights movement was still in, in motion. That's right. Uh, the the gay movement was was just beginning. All of this was exploding within a few years of each other, and we were caught up in it. And so there was, a, on one sense. Uh, a cohesive audience that we just called other freaks or other, you know, we didn't call them hippies in those days. We called ourselves freaks. But also within that, there were these very specific uh, interest groups. And so I began as a publisher to realize um, we ought to do some specialized publications. So I began um, putting together anthologies like dope comics. That's self-evident or, I approached uh, uh, Trina Robbins to to put together What Satin or her own comic, Trina's Women. Uh, I approached uh, Howard Cruz once I learned he was gay to do a gay anthology because there I thought there ought to be voices out there. Yeah, all of these things to me just were common sense um, to reach the the subcultures within the larger counterculture. And it seemed to work because it kept growing. And uh, uh, but at, at, at some point, you know, the, the war ended, and, uh, and, and, and most hippies gradually started uh, cutting their hair and getting jobs. And uh, it goes and, straight. Yeah, it was, it was the, the the process of, of of assimilation into the larger culture, which is just a natural thing that we've seen over and over with every era. Yeah. And so Kitchen Sink and I had to change with the times. And for me, it was diversifying into uh, what, what, what in part, was the, the classic comics, collecting them when hardly anybody else was paying attention to that, and encouraging people like Will Eisner and Harvey Kurtzman to come back and do new things and uh, to uh, develop new graphic novels, because once... Once Will Eisner broke the ice with Contract with God, mm-hmm. suddenly people wanted to do long comic books and not just 30 It was legitimate. Pamphlets. It became an art form. Exactly. Or no, a literary I, form, anyway. When um, when you started your printing house or publishing house, you know, it was under Krupp Comics, yes, and then Kitchen Sink Press? Krupp was the corporate umbrella. Kitchen Sink was the imprint. It was one of, initially, Kitchen Sink was one of the arms of that octopus, but uh, it eventually became the the main title. Uh, 
Krupp was mainly used for the distribution arm, and mm-hmm. I sold that in the late 70s or maybe 1980 to Capital City Distribution, and at that point changed the corporate name to Kitchen Sink. And uh, So how old were you at the time then, when everything's really taking off, and now uh, Krupp is on board, um, and you're publishing and distributing comics with big names? Well, how old were you then? I was in my early 20s. Uh, uh, I mean, I was born in 46, uh, so I did my first comic in 69. Um, I was still not yet 23. I was 22 when I started the business. You seem to be one of the most organized and prolific and productive uh, freaks from the 60s, to borrow <laughs> the comic the vernacular. And uh, how do you achieve that balance? Well, first of all, those are two great uh, lifestyles, but it's hard to merge the two <laughs> effectively. Um, I wasn't one of those people who was uh, puffing on a joint all day. I can tell you that 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 was. You'd have no time, you know. Reserved, you'd be exactly. doing all this. I was reserved for evenings or, or weekends. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I, yeah, I guess I, I, I did have a, a purpose in mind, and um, uh, I, I don't, I don't know how atypical that was or not. I. I, I I don't think I was analyzing at the time. But, well, um, you know, around the time you you you, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Around the time you you moved out to Princeton, and then your your your, it everything effectively moved there. Yes, and you're living in the country, and right. and you're married, and then you had kids. It must have been very difficult to to juggle everything. And well. But in, you did retros- it. in retrospect, I can agree with you. At the time, I was just doing what had to be done. And if a lot of things had to be done, then I did a lot of things. Or I found a way to enlist other people or recruit other people or whatever. I was trying to solve uh, uh, whatever problem there was. But all the time I was doing that, you got to remember, I'm essentially having fun because it's a dream come true to be... Mm-hmm making comics, and when I realized pretty early on um, that I was uh, I had become a publisher by default, mm-hmm. and I wasn't drawing full-time, at least I was uh, making comics, which is its own form of creativity. And as an editor and so on, I mean, I'm, I'm influencing what other people are doing, so I, it, it never stopped being fun, even though a lot of it was work and long hours, and uh, sometimes, you know, heartbreak. Uh, at, 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 at the essence, I was still doing what, to me, was an ideal uh, occupation. But you still found time to run for public office. Well, <laughs> technically, yes. <laughs> Tell us about uh, again, that. Well, I was, uh, in, in my younger years, I was a, 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 a serious socialist, and uh, I, I was... Uh, almost singularly the youth movement of the uh, Wisconsin branch of the Socialist Labor Party, which mm-hmm. was uh, a, a slowly dying party. I'm yeah. not even sure it's still in existence anymore, but at at, at the time I was caught up in it. Uh, my grandfather had been a socialist, and uh, it was not a dirty word to me. And Milwaukee had, for, uh, uh, from, for most of the years from the, turn of the century until 1960 had a mayor who was a, a socialist or at least uh, from from what the, the socialist party which was 
safe enough for for even Republicans to vote for them in those days because mm-hmm. they were just representing clean government. So the word socialist was not dirty growing up in Milwaukee. The Socialist Labor Party was a more doctrinaire branch of of Marxism, and um, I, I I was talked into being the candidate for lieutenant governor in mm-hmm. I think 1970, and I I did take it seriously, but um, of course. There was never, you know, a remote prayer of of being elected. It was part of just the party's educational efforts. But I did appear at debates like the uh, League of Women Voters would would have all the candidates, Democrat, Republican, and 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 minority parties, and so there were things like that where uh, uh, it was a legitimate kind of campaigning, but but never with the, the notion that anything would come of it other than the the party was planning for me to be a standard bearer in the future. Uh, after a few years of that, I did drop out. I became, uh, I would say, disillusioned with the party line. And uh, uh, But but yes, I, the, the same year that I uh, co-founded the Alternative Faith of the Bugle and incorporated Corrupt Comic Works, um, I, I, I was running for office. It was a busy year. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm in Canada, and I happily pay tax, so we all get uh, health care. So for years, <laughs> socialism isn't a bad word. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I, we don't I, even I use wish, the word. It just yeah. I wish more. Uh, I don't mind. I wish more Americans south of the border uh, understood that a little better. But well, slowly turning around, that I, I believe, though, yes. Slowly. Slowly. Yeah, slowly. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the themes emerging in your work is. I mean, the you seem to be an idealist. You seem to be an idealist now, and as a young man, you seem to be an idealist. And there's a certain amount of disappointment attached to learning not everybody's going to put in their 40 hours of labor to, you know, exchange their labor credits to help out their brother and sister. And you had a similar experience in your company too when you shared ownership on sweat labor. Yeah, basically you you hit it on the head. I I, I started the company and then I gave away the majority of it to uh, to others, uh, thinking that we were all in this together and everyone would pull their weight. And uh, when that didn't happen, it was it was disillusioning. Um, but I would still rather be an idealist and be disappointed than to be a a pessimist and mm. uh, <laughs> go through life assuming the bleakest uh, options. Uh, I'm I'm a realistic idealist now. I think. <laughs> I think sense. that's fair. I, I think that makes sense. So, how much uh, you know the, your alter ego? In we're going to go back to your career, and I do want to catch up to present day. And um, I know you're going to have to have supper eventually, so I don't want to keep you all day, just long enough, if I may. Um, but Steve Krupp, tell me about Steve Krupp, and is Steve? Are you? Are are you at peace with your inner Steve Krupp? Is Steve <laughs> Krupp part of you? Who is Steve Krupp? Well, um, it started uh, in the early days of, uh, of of publishing comics when we began getting a, a lot of unsolicited submissions in the mail. And back then there was time to actually answer each one. And uh, I tried to be helpful, even though 90-some percent were unusable. But occasionally, you know, we'd, we'd find things over the transom. 
But I would also be pretty honest, and I found out when I answered one young artist uh, honestly in criticizing his work, he took great offense, and I got a very nasty letter back addressed to me, and suddenly I realized, yeah, I just made an enemy out there, and he knows where I live, and uh, Mm -hmm. maybe I better be a little more careful. So what I began doing from that point on was the person who answered uh, those unsolicited submissions was not me. It was a guy named Steve Krupp. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And uh, to make sure it seemed more authentic, I even had a rubber stamp made with his signature. So I would rubber stamp the notes, uh, you know, with him. And then, and then basically, I, I about the same time began developing this uh, uh, guy who was my. I call my alter ego. He was the capitalist with the cigar in his mouth and the bowler hat and mm-hmm. fat, uh, kind of prototypical capitalist. Yeah. And uh, Definitely an oppressor of the proletariat. Yes, exactly. And he began appearing <laughs> like in the, the little kitchen sink logo you'd see up yeah. in the corner of the comic and in some of the ads. And he became then a recurring character in some of the strips I was doing. He's the closest I have to, a, I think, a recurring character. And uh, so it started out as a kind of a practical thing, and then it turned into a you know a running joke. And uh, at a certain point in my career, when I, I achieved enough notoriety that I was contacted by who's who in uh, in America, and so I I proudly filled out an entry and sent it back. And there was a form attached that said, if you have any you know buddy else you could recommend, let us know. So I recommended Steve Krupp as a lark, and he filled out a form. <laughs> and suddenly we were we were both in uh, it actually may have been who's who in the Midwest to start. Yeah. And uh, a couple of years later, I realized uh, you know I had exaggerated his uh, accomplishments uh, just as a joke, um, and I was honest with mine. And suddenly I wasn't invited to be in the next volume, but he was. Isn't that great? Yeah, oh, it's Isn't like you know the band exactly? auditions, and they want the. You know, give me the drummer and the singer. Everybody else can go. (laughs) Exactly. So I decided, all right, what the hell? So I began making his every year. You know, he would he would be like eighty some years old, but he'd get remarried and he'd have more children and he'd write new books and acquire new corporations and they bought every line of it, hook, line, and sinker. So Uh that became a running joke. and uh, so I I used to say, well, Steve was more famous than me, and I can prove it. and uh, I even had stationery where he, 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 I think he was in Peru, and I would write people with that Peru address if I, if I didn't want to hear from them <laughs> again, because it would go to a dead letter box in Peru. Yeah. So I had fun with it. And yeah. uh, to this day, I still, you know, you see this fat, jowled guy with a cigar, that's Steve, that shows up from time to time. Well, you know, while we talk to you, and you're telling us how, you're, how you began and your career progressed, you know, I, I think it's time we start to acknowledge the fact that you had, had become, well, fairly big. I mean, you'd you'd certainly achieved a, a critical recognition at the early comic uh, conventions when you're invited. People started to seek you out that ended up forming long-term relationships. So you know, the only ones I can think of are, are Stan Lee, uh, Harvey Kurtzman, uh, Will Eisner. Um, I mean, you had now become uh, a big name. Uh, tell me about that transition period well, where you realized something was really working out. Well, you know, big big, big name is, it has to be in quotes there. Uh, oh. 
I, I, I did meet Will Eisner be- at my at my first convention in 1971. Yes, and I did uh, I did reach out to Stan Lee and Harvey Kurtzman, and uh, they reached back. Yeah, I was astonished and pleased and certainly took advantage. And you got to remember, back in those days, people wrote letters. And I mm-hmm. think it made all the difference because it's harder today with email. Email is so, well, just sterile looking on your screen. Back when I wrote those guys, I had very cool looking letterheads. I was always very uh, inventive um, uh, with what I would call the art of the letterhead. And I changed them a lot. And I, I would use exaggerated elements and... Uh, you know, uh, we would have the Krupp building, and that would be a, like an engraving of a ten-story building that, uh, of course, we weren't really in. But it, 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 it that's beautiful. Yeah, it yeah. just. I mean, I thought it was funny. If some people took it literally, then to me it was even funnier. One of them, I had a stationery that that uh, at the bottom in the fine print it said that we were located above the uh, uh, the polyprim dry cleaner on Milwaukee's <laughs> prestigious east side. And when I sent that to one of my first letters to Stanley, he found it hilarious. And I thought it was great. He read the fine print and thought it yeah, was funny. So once he saw, you know, I was uh, apparently a clever guy uh, with, with some talent, he started offering me jobs. And I mm-hmm. would regularly turn him down because even though he was a hero on one level, I was having too much fun to drop what I was doing and move to New York City, a place I did not want to live, and work for Marvel, which I realized could end up being a, an editorial drone no matter how much Dan promised me. So I, uh, I, I kept saying no to him until uh, finally the crash of 1973 when we had a couple of crises uh, with, with, with head shops and uh, Supreme Court decision and such. Um, suddenly I, I took him up on his offer as long as they didn't have to move to New York, and I ended mm-hmm. up doing this experimental magazine for him. that The comics uh, book. Yeah, which ironically enough, actually, I'm collecting right now with my partner, John Lind, and that'll be out uh, this fall from our new kitchen sink imprint at Dark Horse. But, but, but yes, that, that kind of chance thing developed into a, a, a relationship and then actually a job, and, uh, and, and I, I, I still am in touch with Stan. He, he turned out to be a good guy, as far as I'm concerned, and, and even much so more so with Harvey Kurtzman, who was truly a hero, and when I was able to get him to respond to letters, you better believe uh, I didn't stop. And, uh, and and also with Will Eisner and anyone else, I wasn't afraid to reach out. And uh, you got to remember also there were relatively few options in those days, even for these old pros. Um, uh, certainly uh, 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 Kurtzman at the time was working for Hefner, and Eisner had his own business, and and, and Stan Lee was obviously with Marvel, but they were willing to uh, to uh, consider doing things with me, and that made the job all the more great because I wasn't just dealing with my peers who I expected to be working with me. Suddenly, there were guys from another generation who I thought were were. Were giants. giants. They, they were giants. They were giants yeah. in, in our yeah, field. They're giants. So, uh, partly, I think what what appealed to them, aside from initially the letterheads of all things, was just that uh, I promised and delivered on giving them a quality product and 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 on, you know nice paper, well designed, uh, pay attention to details, 
make sure that the, the check is for the right amount and it's explained. All those things that, as a young artist, I wanted, they wanted too. Well, you, and you brought some of the, the values from that time. Well, you put your money where your mouth is. I mean, I, I'll stop, but you're paying much higher uh, page rate than than other publishers were paying at that time. Um, you, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, your deal with Stan Lee is one of the first times that they uh, let artists uh, keep their own copyright after printing and 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 right. pay, well, we retain the rights to the character. Um, and the page rate was, was yeah. so high as well, and well, as was just, yours. Well, relative to, uh, yeah, the, the the Marvel rate relative to to underground comics, by all means, but it was about yes, four art, times their average rate, wasn't it? Uh, yes, at least for first printing. The, the difference that. with undergrounds was if, if we kept reprinting, the artist would be paid over and over again, yeah. whereas Marvel didn't do that. Uh, but I the see. fact that Stan was even willing to talk to me about even willing to consider that—that's yes, yeah. that was that was. I can't tell you how big that was at the time, and and how much. Honestly, I have to say, um, uh, Stanley was a mensch to. Uh, to negotiate with us because uh, you know we were not proven marketable talents. We were uh, scruffy young upstarts, um, and he was giving us uh, a national audience much larger than we we would have ordinarily had. And he was willing to deal with us fairly. Now he didn't give us everything we wanted, but we compromised, and we ended up getting everything. And that's mm-hmm. probably the reason comics book. Uh, was dropped by Marvel was Stan was literally too generous. And I think uh, that the people who owned the company started paying attention. They said, what are you doing here? And other creators, other, you know, older people in the bullpen who were doing stuff for Marvel were saying, Hey, what are you giving these breaks to these uh, mm-hmm. long haired guys? What about for? Me? Yeah. What am I chopped liver? You know, that's right. <laughs> And so, uh, honestly, it's uh, the, the term I've used for it in the past is I think we opened a Pandora's box that yeah. couldn't be shut. And yeah. uh, for better or worse, you know, because for me, I think obviously for the better, for Marvel, the corporation, uh, it was for the worse because, you know, they, they slowly but surely began to placate the creators by, 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 by giving them crumbs that grew and grew and yeah. It's 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 certainly if you work for Marvel now, it's not like you would get everything, but at least you get residuals and you get mm-hmm. your art back and you're you're treated more decently and respectfully. And and now stars there can 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 get very nice uh, bonus royalties and such, whereas that was unthinkable back in the '60s and '70s. Yeah, I mean, if well, yeah, I'm thinking of you know original creators like Steve Ditko and. And well, yeah, Joe Kubert and Jack well, Kirby fact, and all these uh, old timers. Yeah, in fact, you know, I mean, obviously Ditko, we know now, was an Ayn Rand follower, and uh, he went off and did his own thing, like Mister A, and and and, mm-hmm. and effectively mirrored what underground cartoonists were doing. His politics may have been in a different direction, mm-hmm. but he was another guy who wasn't willing to work for the man, literally. Um, He'd rather do his own thing and suffer the financial consequences. Yeah. So I, I respect Ditko for that, even though I also... Integrity. Yeah, as a fan, I would have loved to have seen him continuing to do Spider-Man. But 
he made a decision on principle. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> around that time, the comics book too, and and Stanley's offer represented an opportunity to you because you're at a a bit of a crisis, I think, both with the the direction that the comics underground comics industry was taking. The market was saturated at that point, and the quality of work from other well, the stores were full, full shelves of of low quality books that that bogged down the marketplace, I think. And then yourself, that was a turning point in your life. Um, I won't necessarily get into here, but that was uh, just at the right time, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. So, again, you know, things happen, and there are a lot of factors, and uh, both personal and uh, things of a, of a national nature and of an industry nature, and you, you, you have to go with the flow to a large extent at the same mm-hmm. time. You know, at the same time, I I didn't necessarily ever accept the status quo, and uh, when when it when it came to uh, creator rights and and certain things, uh, I I just instinctively uh, championed them, and I certainly wasn't alone. And uh, together, you know, uh, parts of that generation were able to to, to make some some changes yeah. that, that reverberate to this day, and 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 we we can be proud of that. Uh, you can also look back and say, "Gee, you guys did some pretty silly things or dumb things too." Sure, we all we all do. Uh, how come you never moved? It's always easy. Well, it is. You know, how come you never moved? I mean, I understand you didn't want to move to New York. I understand. But I did move. High- oh, I, I did move from uh, I moved from Milwaukee, a pretty big city, to Princeton, which was a tiny rural town, and then I moved again to Massachusetts twenty years ago. So. Well, no, I beg your pardon. That's true. What I mean is, you know, during the height of the the uh, the movement in the '60s, you didn't move right. to San Francisco, um, and you uh, and didn't move to New York for Marvel. Correct. Um, correct. And I and I can't tell you it wasn't. Why is that? Well, it's not because I didn't consider it. Um, yeah. I did consider it. Uh, San Francisco is a wonderful place. It's also a very expensive place. That's mm, true. And um, by the time I uh, I moved to Princeton. Um, I, I bought an old farm, and 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 that meant I inherited a, a barn and, and a lot of outbuildings. And so suddenly, for me, space was completely cheap. I was mm-hmm. paying $125 a month for square footage I couldn't have dreamed of. Now, yes, it took a lot of fixing up and roofs to, to, to fix and installation and all these things, but gradually I turned that barn into offices, and then I built a warehouse next to it. And there were no zoning laws, so I could I could literally do whatever I wanted to the degree I could afford it. And the way I could afford it was I was selling all those Marvel comics I bought as a youth when 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 I was buying five copies of every Marvel. Mint. Really? Yeah, I bought five of every one, socked them away. And okay, then, how old were you when you were buying five five of every Marvel? Um, when I started college at eighteen. What a smart guy. Um, it was just instinctive. I, yeah. I, I, I don't, don't know that. It seems smart in hindsight at the time. You got to believe me. The druggist probably thought I was nuts to buy all those comics, and mm-hmm. my girlfriend certainly thought I was nuts. But I did it. Mm-hmm. I would read one and not touch the other four. So by the time I was ready to sell them, they were mint. And uh, I mean, some of the things I sold for a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars then seemed like an, an unbelievable profit to me at the time. But now, if I'd kept them, those same books could be worth ten, twelve thousand dollars or more. So, 
You wouldn't have had always... action 74, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think when I sold them, it was around 1980, mm. which is when I yeah. remodeled my barn and stuff. So I'd sat mm. on them for, you know, uh, maybe close to 20 years. But if, if I had saved them till now, I mean, good Lord, and given them the heritage, I, I, I can't even imagine what they would have brought. But it's always buy, sell, I mean, buy low, sell high if you can. I yeah. just sold somewhere in between. Point is, I was able, by being in a place like Princeton, in the middle of nowhere, um, to run a company with very low overhead. And anybody who's ever had a business knows overhead is key. Mm -hmm. San Francisco had all the cultural amenities I would have died for. I would have loved to be in San Francisco, but the pragmatic part of me said, nope, low overhead is more important than, you know, being in, 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 in a city like that. So I visited it and I saw the guys and, uh, and then I, 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 I enjoyed it briefly, but I couldn't pull that trigger. And yeah. New York, for other reasons, New York just to me was way too big, too noisy, and at the time too unsafe. And uh, I, I preferred the fresh air and the <laughs> low overhead. But there's trade-offs for everything. Sure. And uh, there would have been advantages in, 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 in being in either of the big cities. Um, um, I, I think in retrospect, I made the right decision, but there still aren't times I don't second-guess it. Well, what's the point of second-guessing it? Yeah. You know, uh, you ran Kitchen Sink Press for about 30 years then. Um, you're at the forefront of the underground comic scene. Um, you negotiated some fantastic terms with Marvel. Um, you, well, over that time, you published and and printed books from some of the greats from the Golden Age. Um, and then, well, so I think you won. You know, <laughs> it's just in, a, right, right. in hindsight, it seems like you won at life there. I think you did a good job. <laughs> All right, As you say so, Greg. Thank you. Now, in the in the the late nineties, you know, um, you published some big books more recently. I mean, The Crow was a huge seller for you, I understand, and and when that came out, everybody thought that was amazing, and still do. But um, if we jump ahead now, um, when you met Kevin Eastman, and then Tundra and Kitchen Sink merged, um, can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, where do you want to start at the beginning? <laughs> well, I mean, what was the incentive? I mean, the kitchen yeah. sink seemed to have been doing well. And well, yes and no. Um, so long. Yeah, it was it was doing well um, because of the low overhead, but you have to understand it was still struggling in a sense because um, even in a really good month, uh, kitchen sink might be one percent of the comic market, mm -hmm. and I'm still fighting. Um, for market share against giants like Marvel and DC and then the, the, the next tier like Image and Dark Horse and yeah. go down the list. And um, so um, unlike the underground scene where I'm dealing with a head shop market and I have more control over it because there's really only, uh, there were four underground comics publishers. We used to jokingly call ourselves the big four, like the big four automakers. So, you know, the big four owned that market such as it was. And and you have to understand 
that actually was a pretty sizable market because we were we were we, we could print ten twenty thousand of of almost anything and sell it. Whereas today, believe me, a lot of publishers die to get ten twenty thousand copies of anything they they printed. Yeah. So the, so the transition to the direct market um, had 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 uh, some um, some pains attached to it and. So by the time Kevin Eastman called me, which I believe was the winter of 1992, if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. I, I'll never forget it was winter because I was watching a Packer game in Wisconsin because, of course, that's a state religion. And yeah. I was with some friends and the phone rang and I, I will never forget turning to my friends and saying who would call in the middle of a Packer game. And, of course, it was Kevin Eastman who didn't know that rule. And uh, uh, I remember that conversation very well, too, because he started out just, you know, with some small talk. And, and he said, uh, so how you doing out there? And being a jokester, but also with a dark sense of humor, I said, well, I'm 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 burning my awards to keep warm. <laughs> <laughs> and he yeah. laughed at that and he picked up on that, which I was basically saying to him, you know, look, I'm not not making much money to speak of, but I'm, you know, we've got recognition and I'm comfortable. What's up? And he said, well, I've got a proposition for you that's either your dream come true or your worst nightmare. And I can tell you all I really heard was dream come true. Mm. Now, Um, and he'd be uh, closed with money from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yes, he was, he was at least perceived to be, yes, very, very, very wealthy relative to the rest of us. Yeah. And so um, I said, well, let's talk. And uh, we did, and it followed up with a, a trip to Northampton, Massachusetts. And uh, the more I talked to him, the more the idea appealed to me for a number of reasons. First of all, I was then divorced for the second time. Mm-hmm. I had great difficulty meeting anybody in the, in, the, in this uh, very two-hour commute from the city. Yeah, exactly. And I was feeling uh, kind of culturally deprived, and even though Northampton is not uh, a, a big city either, it's, it's, it was a college town, and it, it had uh, a lot more culture than where I lived. And it, it, it was there was something about New England that I found very appealing and, and fresh. And suddenly the whole thing sounded uh, appealing, especially when he said uh, he, he wanted to buy um, essentially half of my company. Um, mm. And uh, cash was on the table. And I had struggled for a long time. And while you can say what I did was successful, I did a lot. I accomplished a lot. It was Everything was reinvested, and I never put aside any money. You weren't that liquid. And, exactly. Yeah. And so suddenly here was a chance for somebody to write me a nice size check. And in addition to that, to invest an even larger amount into the joint company and to the bring to the table a lot of connections he had that I didn't have to people like uh, Alan Moore, for example, Scott mm-hmm. McLeod. And well, so I have to yeah. say, I, 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 I said yes to the deal, and uh, but I did it without really doing proper due diligence. And, and, and same on, on, on his side. I think he had some um, unrealistic expectations of what I would bring as well as me having unrealistic expectations about what he would bring. And ultimately, um, it really didn't work for a lot of complicated reasons. Um, but briefly, we, we flourished creatively, and I won't go into the darker side of it, other than uh, you know, within a few years, the kitchen sink uh, was 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 gone for the world. Yeah. But I, 
I, I don't really blame Kevin personally, and I, I think he'd say the same. And it's too complicated for a, a phone interview, but uh, mm-hmm. but they did make things that move. happen. Yeah, yeah. You just we just hope it doesn't happen to us. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, back in the in the early days, I remember reading what was the fellow's name? It was it Tyler Lancey. Yeah. He he was the business minded person that helped you. Yep. Sort of get your financial ship in order and start earning money. Um. It, Later on, and, and you had a couple experiences already where you uh, you had some partners, I believe, that we mentioned weren't putting in the amount of the labor necessarily. Um, the guy ran off with your eight hundred dollars from Snide One, <laughs> right. so you'd have some disappointments there. And you, by all means, Kevin Eastman would, or any deep-pocketed investor, would look like a gift. You bet. Yeah. Well, now though, tell me what. Um, what shape uh, Kitchen Sink Press is now? It's an imprint of Dark Horse Comics, yeah. Well, keep in mind, actually, let's let's be uh, uh, let's clarify. Kitchen Sink Press died in 1998 or 99. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what was just announced is Kitchen Sink Books, not yes. Press. So it's the essence of that imprint. It's basically the name associated with me, but it's a completely different corporation. Mm-hmm. And so it's important that your listeners understand that. Um, and uh, it's one that I co-own with my partner, John Lind. And we are an autonomous uh, imprint that uh, is now linked with Dark Horse, meaning Dark Horse. Uh, John and I creatively will put together books, mm-hmm. and Dark Horse will manufacture and market, and uh, it's basically a profit share plan. So. We'll both be happy as long as the books do well in the marketplace, and we'll keep doing it. Um, we're literally just starting. The announcement was just made a couple of months back, and the first book, the, that Best of Comics book, that Marvel experiment, yeah. that'll be that'll be debuting in November. And then we've got four or five things uh, lined up for for next year, and hopefully we'll we'll keep that pace. Hmm. Now, alongside that. Um, Tell me what other projects you're doing and what you're involved in. I mean, you had a, the Harvey Kurtzman book a few years back, which I've got next to me right now, which is a beautiful book. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, that was terrific. I put that together with Paul Buell for Abrams. Uh, that mm-hmm. was a, a, a labor of love. Um, I was thrilled to do. I uh, co-wrote another book, a uh, biography of Al Cap, that came out a few months ago from Bloomsbury. Mm-hmm. That's another character I've always been fascinated with. Um, Somebody who was, I think, a creative genius, but also uh, conflicted. Uh, uh, yeah, had a had a very dark side. Um, uh, yeah, so that 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 was another uh, thing on my wish list that I, I was able to cross off. I um, I've been, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I, I put together uh, exhibits of art. I just had one in Lucerne, Switzerland, in in March. Another one in uh, Munich uh, in May. And there's an Eisner exhibit right now at uh, San Francisco, and so these things are are, are, are always in in the background. I'm uh, uh, on, on the books that John and I are packaging. There's elements that I'm writing in terms of essays or introductions or, or contributing to. Um, so, uh, you know, each day when I get up, I, I mean, I look at the you know what, what what has to be done and what the deadlines are, and I'm I'm uh, partly scared to death and partly energized by it. So even though I'm I'm approaching uh, uh, 
being ancient uh, <laughs> by, <laughs> by by any young fan's uh, standards, um, I, I I'm, I'm still full of energy and. The role model for me are, are, are people like Will Eisner, who worked until he was in his late 80s, and uh, Carl Barks, who was still working mm-hmm. into his late 90s. And uh, uh, I think if you're a cartoonist and a writer, and you know, we we we, we can continue as long as uh, the hand doesn't shake and the eye is clear and the brain is uncluttered. So. You know, one thing um, for the circles that I keep. Use Q Young, just so you know. <laughs> well, it is relative, right? Yeah, and you're a lot more interesting than some of the the young, more youthful people I know. So <laughs> it's it's like everything; it's all relative. But a question exactly. for you: you know, in your life, you've two things I want to touch on. So I, I want to bookmark that. More anecdotal, but but they sound like a lot of fun to talk about. Um, you've got three kids. Tell me a bit about them. Is that right? I'm sorry that. You've got kids. you've got three Sheena, you got three kids, yes, yes girls? I, I do, yes. Two are two are grown and, and, and uh one is still a teenager. Um so yeah, that's uh Well that's, and I'm just looking at Comics is Easy by Alexa Kitchen right now, age seven. Right. Which Will Eisner said, Marvelous talent with so much yet to come. Um it sounds like you've got good genes that are getting passed along. Well, I, I, I guess there's something to be said for that. Um, certainly, at the, I didn't teach her how to draw, that's for sure. Um, but to be published and, at uh, the age of seven, and, and she has a, had a deal with Disney, I think? Yeah, actually, uh, right. The, the first book was nominated for Harvey and Eisner Awards, which yeah. I had nothing to do with. And uh, In fact, I don't even think I voted that year for either one. Um, but after that came out, uh, we were approached... Uh, I think the New York Times first did a, a piece on her, like a, a, a large article. It's like a third of a page article, and I remember at the time thinking, "My God, I, I've barely gotten you know an inch of the New York Times." <laughs> yeah, and my 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 tiny little kid is being written up. So after that appeared, we got all kinds of calls, and uh, I ended up. I decided I could, even though one of the hats I wear is I am a literary agent for a, a lot of talent. I could not, in good conscience, represent my own daughter. I thought that was wrong. So as a parent, I engaged a completely separate agent um, who who was uh, well-recommended, and he placed her book at Disney. It's called Grown-Ups Are Dumb. She did that when she was nine, I believe, mm-hmm. and she got a very nice, uh, substantial advance for that, and it sold, as I recall, around 20,000 copies. And they wanted a sequel. At that point, she was... Uh, I think 11 or so, and she announced to us she did not want to do comics anymore for the public. She was effectively retiring from... That's interesting. At what age? 11 or 12. And so I remember saying to her, I said, you know, they're offering you a lot of money here. Are you sure? And she said, Dad, the money doesn't mean anything to me. Um, And I should also point out, and uh, not in a lot of detail, but she's... she's, uh, uh, it's been mentioned before, so it's not a secret. She's, mm-hmm. she's uh, what what was called uh, Asperger syndrome until mm-hmm. they changed it, and now it's just part of what they call the autism spectrum. The spectrum, yeah. So, and so part of that is she's just very private about her work, and she she just doesn't uh, want attention, and so mm-hmm. we respect that. She's still a terrific artist. I can tell you, she 
she she doesn't want it showed to anybody, including her parents, for the mm-hmm. most part. So I appreciate your bringing attention to her, but it's the last thing she wants right now as That's a sixteen-year-old. Something to be proud of, though, as a father. You bet. Yeah. And what do your other kids do? Uh, Scarlett lives in Hawaii. She's a, a, a jewelry designer. She makes great, funky, kind of steampunky jewelry. And mm-hmm. uh, I like that uh, my, style. Yeah. My oldest daughter is is uh, basically an interior decorator for a retail uh, fashion chain, and she travels around the east half of the country, basically making stores look better. So all three daughters are are very creative in their very own way. Very creative. Yeah. So maybe there is something in the genes. Who knows? Yeah. Well, you did something right. Yeah. <laughs> Question for you then. Um, just jumping back a little bit. The uh, Al Cap book. Did you have a chance to meet Al Cap? No. The closest I came was I talked to him on the phone one time. Mm-hmm. Um, I had all long admired him, and uh, uh, I, 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 I mean, now I live in Massachusetts, where where he was based. But back then, I was in Wisconsin, and you know, he he's not the kind of guy who went to comic book conventions. He was, you know, no. in a, he was in a rarefied atmosphere, uh, quite the celebrity in his day, more so than any other cartoonist you 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 can name. Um, I did though. Um, as I told you, I was never shy reaching out to people. And uh, when I started the Snurf line, the humor anthology, mm-hmm. I decided early on that I wanted to alternate covers by underground cartoonists and then old pros. So <clears throat> I think the third issue was by Will Eisner, and the fifth cover was by Harvey Kurtzman. Yeah. And I offered the seventh cover to Al Cap <clears throat> and in a letter. And uh, I got a... I didn't get a reply, but I got a call from his then office assistant who said, uh, you know, um, he didn't think that was likely to happen, but he said, why don't you talk to Mr. Cap on the phone, he'll set up an appointment and so on, and see if you can talk him into it. So I thought, all right. So um, this was kind of a scary proposition to me, because of all the people in the business, I have to say he was the most intimidating. It seems a little intimidating. I mean, Harvey Kurtzman seems worldly and fun. I mean, I don't know them from Adam personally, yeah. but Harvey Kurtzman seems worldly and fun. Will Eisner, from the interviews that I've seen and read, he just sounded like a beautiful person, exactly. very nice and gentle. And Hal Cap seems just kind of scary. Yeah, he was. Um, well, also you have to understand, like like I alluded to earlier, he, it's hard for someone younger today to realize, but he was a true celebrity. He was mm-hmm. not just a cartoonist. He was uh, somebody who turned on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He would frequently be a guest or The Mike Douglas Show or any of the TV shows. He would pop up as a guest. He not only had Little Abner, which at its height was in 80 or 90 million newspapers yeah. around the world, he had a radio show. He yeah. had a newspaper column. I mean, the man was all over the map. You tell me I wear hats. Man, Al Cap was everywhere, and he was huge. Mm-hmm. And so he also, shortly before I contacted him, um, had been busted in Wisconsin on a, on a sex charge. And this was very embarrassing to him, and it ultimately brought down his career. So the last thing he wanted to do probably was hear from a hippie in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. That's where, you know, he, he was having... Um, uh, to defend himself. And so I did have the conversation. Um, I, I prepped myself um, 
by reading an interview he had done in Playboy, because there really wasn't anything else I could find at that time uh, about him. And one of the things that, that stood out to me was he said in that interview that he did not trust altruists. And anyone who you know, claimed to be an altruist, he automatically mistrusted. He, he only respected people who admitted they wanted to make money. So when he called, and I got that distinctive laugh on the phone, and the first thing he said to me was, so how are you doing out there? Are you making any money? Hmm. And I was so glad I had read that interview because normally, you know, I would have been honest and said, well, we're struggling. With, but I said, yes, Mr. Cap, doing very well, making a lot of money. <laughs> and he said, I'd love to hear that. And then he laughed. And I yeah. thought, oh, my God, that's the first time in my life I'd bare-faced lied to anyone. But I... I, I didn't want him to hang up on me. Sure. Then the next thing he basically said was, why would I want to do this thing? He said, you're doing underground comics. Why would I want to contribute to that dribble or whatever he called it? And I said, well, I said, because I want you to take advantage of the complete freedom that it's all about. I said, my audience is hippies that you despise, but I'm giving you a platform to spit in their eyes if you wish. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I like that idea. He said, how much does it pay? Mm -hmm. and uh, cover rates I think were probably a couple hundred bucks in those days and I think I doubled it to try to attract them and that didn't impress him I think you know and remember he was speaking on campuses for three four five thousand dollars or more and so uh, this was nothing in terms mm -hmm. of money to him so he said well let me think about it and the rest of the conversation I don't remember other than we never spoke again and it speaks for itself yeah Okay, well, it's interesting. It's interesting. If we can jump back, it's two things that I bookmarked earlier I want to come back on. When you were doing Bugle American, you know, in in uh, Oddly Compelling, when this, the, talking about that phase of your career, you, you described it, and I'm paraphrasing loosely, as the hardest work you've not been paid for. And you did that for about seven years or so, I think. Um, right. What was it about that labor of love that that made you carry on with it, whereas you you jump in and out of other titles? You're talking about the Bugle covers now? Yes. Yeah. That, well, you have to remember, I co-founded the paper, and it yeah. was uh, it was a regional thing, and it was part of a kind of a collective effort, and I was part of the collective. Uh, kind of, was it kind of an underground newspaper of sorts? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Underground is pushing it a bit. It was. Uh, there was a very radical paper in Milwaukee that could more accurately be called the underground paper. We were the more moderate underground mm -hmm. paper. Yeah. Um, but we certainly, to the average person in Milwaukee, they were both undergrounds. We just weren't the the ones that would have headlines that would say, you know, off the pigs. Um, we would uh, we would uh, be a little more cautious in our language. And mm -hmm. but the, but the, yes, they were both uh, in that old. What, what what generically would be called underground newspapers. And so it meant that advertising was not easy to get. And uh, and so the, the paper was always struggling, and it went from charging money um, to, 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 to get the income to then going free to, free and, to yeah. higher circulation and more advertising and back and forth. And typically when it would go from one to the other, I would do a cover in a funny way trying to explain um, that. And you have to remember, it just partly it was obligatory, 
but mostly it was fun. I enjoyed mm-hmm. doing those, and I enjoyed being with the group, and I enjoyed seeing the paper come off the presses. And it was part of an effort that I guess I figured would eventually pay off in some way, but if the revenue that paid my rent and groceries came from somewhere else, then I could certainly afford to put a day a week into volunteering my labor there. I, yeah. I wouldn't have known it would last seven years. I, I read something, and there was one time when it was firebombed, yes, and, yes. and still it, it got printed and was only delayed two weeks before the next issue. And they never yeah. caught the culprit that, that firebombed it, but, but theories exist about who and, and why that happened. Yeah, and that's the thing, too. I think, again, for your younger listeners to understand is uh, it's it's one thing to say, you know, well, we're, we're part of the underground and, you know, we have long hair, isn't that cool? But at the same time, you're pissing off a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, that paper ran critical articles about any number of people who could have been motivated to firebomb our building. And to this day, we don't know if it was the American Nazi Party or the Milwaukee Tactical Squad uh, uh, cops or anybody in between, but somebody hated us enough to do that. And uh, that's uh, that's extreme. And it comes with the territory. And if, if you're if you're going to put out a, an underground or alternative paper, you're going to make enemies. Now, when it was firebombed, and I read this, so perhaps you can tell me if, if this is correct or not, you received donations from people who wanted to help it get back on its legs again. Um, Leonard Cohen is one uh, that I read, and, and he's Canadian royalty. Um, another one I read was uh, George Reedy, the uh, White House press secretary. Is that true? Yes, I didn't personally have contact with either of them, but I I think word just got out. Um, Yeah. You know, um, word just got out. It it just shows that you have unexpected friends when Mm -hmm. there's a crisis. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it it got back on its legs again. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, just because I enjoyed reading about it so much, I'd like to hear you describe it. Um, your, Your brush with the draft. And um, maybe tell us briefly how you got out of that and then what happened at the 11th hour that that made it not quite work out. Well, it's not something I can tell real briefly, right? Um, Other than to say uh, I was... uh, You're six foot five or four and you needed to be 146 pounds in order to be medically uh, unfit for service. And you achieved that. And um, and then he was celebrated. Is that true? The night before the weigh-in? Yes, I prematurely celebrated getting my weight down by having a beer party, and uh, that was probably one of the stupider things I did in my life. So I uh, I suffered the consequences. But in the end, someone put their finger on the scale, and it worked out. Yes. Uh, effectively, that's the end to a longer story. Yes, I yeah. I was actually in the army, and I was uh, uh, going to be shipped uh, probably to Vietnam if uh, mm-hmm. somebody didn't didn't fib on my behalf. Yeah. Um, so it, it's one of those episodes that, to me, shows the thin threads of fate we all <laughs> have through our lives, and one tiny little thing. Can uh, can in this case literally be a life or death factor. Yeah. Um, I uh, 
I didn't plan ahead in college for conscientious objector status because I uh, was probably too busy doing other things, but mm-hmm. also, honestly, I guess I didn't think the war would last that long. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Vietnam War lasted a long time. Yeah, yeah, it did. Well, anyway, it looks like, you know, someone up above was, was looking down and smiling on you, though. It, everything worked out. Yeah. And the big difference, too, you have to remember for for new gen, newer generation where there's no draft, um, we, we can look at the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, any other conflict, and, and be upset about it in one form or another, but you don't have to worry about being drafted if you're a 20-year-old uh, young man. Yeah. And back then, that literally hung over our heads. And yeah. it's not like World War II. My my dad went into the Army in World War II. That was, that was you know, the quote, the good war, unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was patriotic. I, I, I joined the... Uh, the ROTC. Yeah, ROTC yeah. when I was a freshman. I, I was not unpatriotic. But this was a war that we thought was clearly unjust and not uh, not something we wanted yeah. to partake in. Well, you so, know, I, so, so we were kind of agreed with that. In World yeah. War II, we had a strong presence in as well. Yeah. Uh, but Vietnam and, and the subsequent wars, well, we've been involved in those, but the Vietnam one wasn't ours. Yeah. yeah. You, you Canadians generally have more common sense, i, I got to tell you. Well, well, thank you. Maybe it's just uh, timing. But, but. <laughs> well, you also don't have you don't have the kind of national interest, you know, that a, that a, that a big country like the U.S. does. Where, let's face it, there are a lot of corporate factors and a lot of mm-hmm. monetary factors that that drive decisions, and uh, you uh, you can be a little more independent up there. Mm-hmm. Well, but, but, but before, we're straying, we're straying from comics, aren't we? Yeah, we are, but uh, it's good to stray now. And then I enjoy that. You know, you've uh, you represented uh, a number of artists, estates, um, and represented them as agents, and and you're carrying on with that as well. Is that true? Yeah, that's still ongoing. Yeah. And so, what does the future hold for you? What would you like to do next? Are you going to return more to to art and drawing? It seems yes, to be that's, one conflict. That's what I hope. Yes, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm winding down the agenting. Um, I'm in two agencies. Each of them is I'm, I'm slowly cutting the strings with some mm-hmm. clients and not taking on any new ones. So that's gradually diminishing. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with with the books I'm creating through the new Kitchen Sink Books imprint. Um, I'm, I'm already <clears throat> focusing more on the creative side, and I've been regularly uh, drawing things that'll be in a sequel to the chipboard uh, sketchbook. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got a couple of assignments that I'm doing for other publishers, ironically enough, um, that'll keep me at the drawing board. Uh, and that typically happens. Is, uh, I'm more likely to do something for another editor who gives me a deadline and lures me with something and, than to do it myself. It's, it's always been a little irony. Well, you, you've been so good at everything you've done, but... The feeling, and I, I could be out to lunch, but the feeling is that your heart leans a little bit more towards the art, and practical matters have kept you a little bit more in the business or balanced towards that. Um, is that fair to say? Is is it something you're happy to do to get more into the art now? Absolutely. 
Well, thanks very much for, for spending time with me today and for letting us to get to know you better. Well, my um, pleasure, Greg. It was fun. We're committed to the art and nothing. Stop us, not even a train, plane, tractor, all of us. We feel the rhythm, sound the marrow of our bones. And we're fascinated by the music, sounds the headphones. Box Beats brings me a relevant speech Like two girls were matching Going to a fashion pageant Asking for some passionate actions With any old masculine mad friend Wait a minute, let me change my tangent Flow tactical, inapplicable For PCs and apples I snap too to slap you The cool, natural Quite attached to getting rich And getting some chicks And maybe a fan that's willing to chill in the sticks I'll tell you what I think Even if society isn't behind me Or the community isn't in unisync Open your ears and your mind to our tones Cause it's a free box bringing you pleasure to your headphones Committed to the art and nothing Stop us, not even a train, plane, tractor All of us, we feel the rhythm Sound the marrow of our bones And we're fascinated by the music Sounds of headphones All the fishes stack like dirty dishes Swimming schools like fishes I mix my beats delicious Having a soul is what we give it Oh man, this is really living Wander, just ponder, sit back and relax and don't squander on them seconds that be passing you by. My heart's still beating till the day that I die. And I'm going to grips with the fact of one thing. Be proud of the stuff that makes you want to sing. Cause if you don't, you might get bitter. I've been called lots of things, but not a quitter. Fool, I quit.